Did you know that drinking alcohol dramatically increases your chances of getting breast cancer, among many other diseases? And if you're like most women I know, you've maybe used alcohol your whole life as a tool to get through when life gets hard, or to fit in in social settings, or perhaps even to cope and numb out when emotions get too big. So why, when we know alcohol is so toxic for our bodies, do we still continue to drink? And why does it seem so hard sometimes to say no? Well, tune in. Today's episode is a powerful and eye-opening conversation with our guest and expert, Sarah Rusbach, about the truth behind why we drink and ultimately how we can start to create a life that we love without alcohol. I know you're absolutely going to love this conversation. And as always, if you're loving the show, please take a minute to scroll down to the bottom of the page and leave a five-star review. It helps us get this episode out there to more people who need this information. So thank you, thank you, thank you for everyone who is leaving, has, has let, left a review. It just means the world to me and helps us really grow. So this conversation is powerful. Sarah is a returning guest on the show and has just released her, her first book, which is absolutely going to be jam-packed, incredible, full of tools about creating a life that you love and changing the way that you see and use alcohol in your day-to-day -day life. So without further ado, let's go ahead and play that interview with Sarah right now. Enjoy. Welcome to the Beyond Sugar Freedom Podcast. I'm your host, Danielle Dame, sugar freedom expert and somatic embodiment coach. Together, we'll be diving into much more than just another conversation around sugar addiction and nutrition. But more importantly, I'll be guiding you through the inner work, mindset shifts, and emotional healing that ultimately lies at the root of your unhealthy habits with food. Are you ready? Let's dive in. Hello, hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode here on the Beyond Sugar Freedom podcast. I'm so excited to welcome a returning guest. Sarah Rusbach is here with us today. Welcome back to the show, Sarah. Thank you so much for having me, Danny. Yes, I love, I'm, I'm just so excited to have you back because I always love our conversations. We have a lot in common um, in the deeper work that we do with sort of a different crutch, right? You're you're really focusing on alcohol and, and I'm in the sugar space and I just, yeah, I love everything that we go through. So we're going to really dive into it today. I have some exciting um, topics that we're going to cover, but for those who don't know Sarah, uh, Sarah Rusbach is a certified women's health and well-being coach, an accredited gray area drinking coach, and a keynote speaker sharing her story to sobriety and impact of alcohol on mental and physical health to global audiences. After developing what she describes as a dysfunctional relationship with alcohol, Sarah made the decision to remove alcohol from her life in early 2019 and has never looked back. She now works with women across the globe, guiding them from feeling lost, stuck, and out of control, something she fully understands herself, to a healthier and happier way of living. And a new piece to add to that, which I'm really excited we're going to be talking a lot about today, is your very first book is officially out there in the world. It is called Beyond Booze, How to Create a Life You Love Alcohol-Free. And I'm so excited to learn more about this book and just dive even deeper into everything that um, 
that you do, Sarah. And for those who, again, before we, I'm going to hand it over to you. <laughs> before we do, uh, Sarah was on the show on episode 75. So if you want to learn more about her backstory and what is gray area drinking and how to know if you have troubles with alcohol, all those sort of baseline information pieces around the conversation around alcohol, go and listen to episode 75. And then of course, come back and listen to this episode because we're going to, we're just going to kick things off and dive even deeper. So maybe a quick place to start, we could just do a little brief intro, Sarah, um, in sharing your story um, and maybe sharing really quickly, like what is gray area drinking for those who haven't already listened to episode 75, and then we'll we'll go from there. Yeah. And I think it's really important to kind of set the scene because a lot of people have uh, the misconception that you only have a problem with alcohol if you define yourself as an alcoholic. And actually, that's simply not true. I had a problem with alcohol, but I didn't define myself as an alcoholic. I didn't drink in the morning. I didn't drink every single day. I didn't lose my job. I didn't lose my relationship. I didn't lose my driving license. And I was very high functioning. So alcohol was very present in my life. But probably to the outside world, it would have looked like I had my shit together. I was doing great. I was raising a family. I was working. I was running half marathons. I was doing all those things that life and society tell us we have to do in order to be, you know, successful women in the in the century that we live in now. But behind closed doors, I was drinking way too much. And not always behind closed doors. I was also drinking a lot when I was out with people. Um, Socialising, alcohol was very present in my life. But at no point would I have defined myself as an alcoholic. And that's why it's so important that we have this term gray area drinking, because if you don't define yourself as an alcoholic, but you know you drink at a dysfunctional level, what even are you? And that's where this term can be really helpful. And I describe gray area drinking as the place between someone who just drinks every now and then. So you know those people that are just like, ah, yeah, I might have a glass of wine, I might not, I kind of don't care. And then people who are rock bottom drinkers, and what I mean by that is they need to have medical support to withdraw from alcohol. They're drinking every day. They're drinking in the morning. They can't get through a day without alcohol, and they need to have medical support to withdraw from alcohol. So you've got two ends of the spectrum there, but what's in the middle? And gray area drinking is that middle murky place where we're using alcohol in a dysfunctional way, but we've not reached the point where we would either admit we've got a problem or perhaps that other people would say that we've got a problem or where we feel like we need to go and get medical support to stop. Mm. Um, A great way to describe it is a scale of one to 10, one being I don't drink at all or I have a glass of champagne at a wedding every now and then, and 10 being I drink every single day, I can't get through a day without alcohol. Gray area drinking to me is about between a four and an eight on that scale. So we've passed the point of take it or leave it. We're using alcohol as a crutch. It might be the first thing we think about when we've had a stressful day, when our kids are driving us nuts, when we've had an argument with our partner, when we're feeling lonely, when we're feeling stressed, when we're feeling sad, whatever the the feeling is, our first immediate thought is, oh, I just need to have a drink. I just need to have a drink and then I'll be okay. So when we've got to that point where we're using alcohol as a crutch, we're starting to get into that gray area. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, thank you for explaining that. You do that so well. Um, and I think that was really makes a lot of sense to everybody listening. How did you, can you share briefly, I know your story is is long. It's not a brief story. <laughs> None of our stories are. Uh, how you sort of hit your 
rock bottom and decided that it was time for you to give up alcohol? Like what was, what was that journey like for you? Yeah. And, and as you said before, my story is, is much more detailed in your other episodes. So just very briefly, I was a classic gray area drinker. I'd always drank alcohol. I discovered alcohol at 14 and I loved it. It for me was something that I used initially to create connection. It was something that it helped me to feel like I fitted in. It, um, I was the new girl. I just moved from Scotland to England. I felt like I really um, stood out like a sore thumb as this new kid in a, in a very exclusive all girls school. And then I discovered alcohol and it made me feel immediately like, I'm one of the gang. I'm someone who fits into this group. And alcohol for me became very present throughout the rest of my life as something that I use to create friendships, to create connection. And as it does for most of us in our teens and 20s, right? You you associate alcohol with socializing, with making friends, with meeting boys, with, you know, all of those things that is the rite of passage of someone into their 20s. And I probably always drank a little bit more than most around me, but never to the point where I thought it was problematic and never to the point where I thought oh there's a problem with my alcohol I need to change it it was just like oh yeah Sarah's a big drinker and almost I wore that as a badge of honor like oh yeah I can keep up with the boys I'm you know but this was the era of the 90s where we had you know sex in the city and the spice girls and girl power and girls can drink boys under the under the table and and so it was very much kind of reinforcing this belief that um the alcohol was something that added to our lives when I I met my husband, I got married, we had a baby, we moved to Australia, I had another baby very quickly. And then everything started to unravel a little bit for me. I had two kids under two. I was living on the other side of the world from my family, my friends, my support group, trying to make friends in a new country. My husband was setting up a business, so he was working long hours. My career, I didn't have a job anymore, whereas I'd had this very successful, fulfilling career in London. And all of a sudden I was at home pureeing carrots, changing nappies, going to monkey music and, and, and struggling. I was really struggling. I was homesick. I was lonely. I lost my identity. I didn't know who I was. And alcohol became a crutch and something that I started to lean on more and more as something to make those feelings go away. And this continued and developed until a few things started to happen that that just made me really question my relationship with alcohol. And, you know, we all know once you get to 40, we can't metabolize alcohol in the same way. A woman's body can't metabolize alcohol in the same way as a man's. And that gets even worse once we get into our 40s and we've got perimenopause going on. So I was finding every time I drank, I had chronic anxiety the next day. It was um, affecting my sleep. I would wake up at 2 a.m. and... Just all of these things were really starting to be red flags for me. And I took a break from alcohol in 2017 after a particularly boozy night that had led to me falling over, smacking my face on the concrete ground, mm-hmm. cutting my nose, um, cutting my lip open. And I was like, okay, I'm going to do a detox. I'm going to take 21 days off. And I did my 21 days. I loved it. I got to 100 days. I kept going because I felt... I had energy, I was sleeping well, my anxiety disappeared, I was happier, I, like all of these positives were coming from it. But then I got to the end of the 100 days and I was like, oh yeah, but like, I can't never drink again, that would just be weird. <laughs> and I'm Sarah the party girl. So I went back to drinking thinking, oh now I'll be fixed, now I won't be a problematic drinker because if I had a problem with alcohol, I wouldn't have just been able to take 100 days off and so clearly I'm fine. 
So I had this misguided belief that now I'd be able to moderate. Now I'd be someone that would just be able to have one or two glasses and not always end up getting really drunk. But it doesn't work like that. And within a couple of weeks, I was back to drinking at the same level as before. And this carried on for two years of me taking breaks, going back to drinking, trying to moderate, never being able to. And finally, 2019, I was like, do you know what? Everything in my life is better when I don't drink. I'm a better mom. I'm a better wife. I'm a better friend. I I like myself more. I show up as a better version of me. And all alcohol is doing is taking from that. And so I've got a decision to make. And I ultimately made the decision that alcohol had to go. And then I did a load of work on myself and finally then set up my business as a great area drinking coach, working with women all over the world who was trapped in that cycle that I was. And I did one interview in um, an online media um, news site over here in Australia. And I shared what gray area drinking was and shared my story. And 8,000 women contacted me and said, you've just told my story. Wow. And that was the point when I went, there are so many people across the world who, so many women who don't identify as being alcoholics, but know that they're stuck in this place where they're drinking dysfunctionally and that it's taking from them, but they don't know how to stop because we live in a world that promotes alcohol, that celebrates alcohol, that shares alcohol as being this extra exciting, wonderful thing to have in our lives. And so I now work with women to kind of remove those those beliefs and actually create a life they love without alcohol. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Thank you. It was so beautiful. So powerful. I think all of us listening, myself included, can really relate to a lot of what you're sharing. And that is so powerful about that, that message that you got that there's women out there that need what you're doing, right? That, that need this support. And, you know, there's so much here that even in what you're sharing, you can replace the word alcohol with sugar in everything that you just shared, right? Like we use it in a very similar way. And often people even may give up alcohol and then turn to sugar or give up sugar and then turn to alcohol, right? Like they're, they're two of the, the socially acceptable like, crutches that we use for so many reasons. Um, you've mentioned a few of these, but I'm curious, obviously you've worked with hundreds of thousands of women at this point. What do you see are the most common themes for why women turn to alcohol like what are what are the most common reasons we're using alcohol that have nothing to do with obviously needing alcohol because we don't need it to live it's not a necessity right we're using it for some reason so there's three reasons and three reasons pretty much only um i've got a group of fifteen thousand women and i asked why do you drink or why did you drink and there were three answers danny and boredom stress and loneliness yeah and so you have to ask, why do we have, and, and the, to set context, the majority of the women in that group are aged between 40 and 60. So it's middle-aged women who are at that stage <clears throat> stage in their life. And it's a combination of boredom, stress, and loneliness. And why do we have a generation of women who are so bored, so stressed, so lonely, or a combination of one or all of those, where all they want to do is escape their lives at the end of every day or most days? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, very parallel with what I see with sugar, right? With food. Um, yeah, those are three powerful reasons that, I mean, we could dive into each of those and like, what is really going on, right? And even going back into our childhood patterning of of feeling alone, right? Or, or having those wounding around um, those pieces. And I would even argue that boredom is loneliness, right? Like for most people, it's not, not having something to do. It's 
I don't know. I'm curious what your thoughts on that. That just came to me because that's something that was always my trigger with sugar was a boredom. But as I'm unraveling more of my, um, my childhood trauma and my wounding around feeling alone in my pain or alone in my life, uh, being, you know, abandoned by friends and all these pieces, I really think that that for me was even the like layer below boredom. Um, and, and this inability to like sit still with myself was like a fear of being in my head, right. Or a fear of the pain as well. It's probably a combination, but what are your thoughts? Yeah, and I think for some people that's definitely the case. I think that um, humans are built for, we need a sense of belonging. We need a tribe that is inherent in our physiology. And yet so few of us have that. And so we live in individually, we live in silos. I don't know if you've um, looked at Johan Hari's book, The Lost Connections. It's incredible. And he talks so much about this, um, that, you know, compared to even our parents growing up, they lived on a street where everybody would be out playing together. All the kids would play every night. The parents would help each other. The, it, it was just very different to how we live now. So you've got that, that we don't live in that way anymore. And, and then you've also got um, traumas that people might have had with abandonment and um, emotional deprivation and things like that. So, yes, I think boredom can fit into that. But but at the same time, I know also know many people who in removing alcohol and then doing work on themselves, their way of alleviating boredom has not always been about belonging. It has been simply through finding activities and experiences that give them that sense of flow because when we have flow we get fulfillment and so it's finding and sometimes that's doing stuff on our own it might be something creative it might be writing it might be painting it might be pottery it might be um, singing it it could be any of those things so they can be interlinked but they can also be separate but what I find is that most of the women I work with if you ask them what are your hobbies what do you love doing they will just look at me with a blank face and their eyes will fill with tears because they actually realize, particularly if they've had kids, that for the last 10, 20 years, they've kind of lost a part of themselves to, to raising kids, as many women do. And then they come through it. The kids start growing up. They, they start getting their own activities. is a very common theme. And then they kind of suddenly got more time. And then they're like, I don't know how to fill that time because I've just been so freaking busy for the last 10, 20 years, just looking after everybody else. And then they feel lost. They feel unfulfilled. They don't even know what they love doing anymore. And so they drink to just make those feelings go away. And the thing about alcohol is it makes boring things more interesting. It dumbs down our brain so that we, you know, an, an evening of just sitting at home, like folding, washing and sorting out the packed lunches suddenly becomes a bit more interesting when you've had half a bottle of wine and yeah. you're, you're, you know, you're getting a bit of a buzz from the dopamine and everything that's being released. And so in actual fact, when I work with women to remove alcohol, like one part of it is removing alcohol. But the second part of it is if we've taken the alcohol out, what are we adding in? Because you can't just take the alcohol out and then just go, oh, that's that's the only part of this work. That is like 10% of the work. The biggest part of the work is actually what am I adding into my life to create a life I love so I don't even need to drink. Yeah. Okay. Let's dive deeper into that because that se- that sounds really important. Um, I know that there are a lot of women out there with that uh, misconception, right? Of it's all about just giving up alcohol and willpowering myself and it could be the exact same with sugar, right? And I love that you're really you're sharing this, this idea that that's 10% and the other 90%. Can you speak more to that 90%? Like what, what are the pieces there that 
we are adding in and how do we actually create that, um, yeah, that, that life then where we don't, we can fold the laundry and be happy folding the laundry without having have a, a glass of wine. Yeah. I mean, look, who's, who's ever really happy folding laundry, right? But we can get to the point where once we fold the laundry, we know we're going to do something that we really love doing. And so it's about, you know, um, I think it's Anne Lemke who's written that book, Dopamine Nation. Is it Anna Lemke, I think is her name? And I'm sure I haven't pronounced it right, but um, she talks about effort-based dopamine. And so we can get a dopamine hit sitting on the sofa doing nothing and drinking a bottle of wine. And then our brain just becomes used to getting that dopamine hit. Or we've got to start looking at effort-based dopamine. So that usually means we've got to do something, Mm -hmm. make an effort in order to get the dopamine hit. And this is the stuff that we have to start adding in. So that's doing, it might be exercise because we get a great big dopamine hit from exercise. It might be doing something that, that the brain finds a little bit challenging. So we've got to start looking at what those things are that we start adding in that make us feel good right? Because the problem is most of us aren't doing many things in our lives that make us feel good outside of drinking alcohol. And yeah. so the stages, you know, once we remove alcohol, so if we, if we consider that there's three stages of this process, stage one, let's just get over the physical cravings for alcohol. Let's, let's start in um, getting some new habits in place so that we don't, we're not, our brain is not automatically thinking about alcohol at five o'clock every day or wherever it normally is. So the stage one, we take that break from alcohol and that might be all we're focusing on for that first initial break is not drinking. And that's what my 30 day programs do is, is support people to, to remove the alcohol. And then stage two, I think stage two, well, this was the stage for me, and this is what it is for many people I see in sobriety, is addressing why we were drinking in the first place. So actually looking at what were the reasons that alcohol was so present in our life and what wounds are there that might need healing. And for me, I went into therapy. I did incredible amounts of of work on myself addressing you know, some of those childhood traumas that I didn't even know were there. Um, and it was quite confronting to go, ah, oh, right, okay. So the stuff that you've squashed down so deep that you kind of don't want to or even know that you need to address, and it all can start to come up when we remove alcohol because we're not squashing it down anymore. So going through that in therapy was was super helpful for me. And then the third stage is, okay, well, what am I doing to create a life I love? What am I adding into my life that is full of activities, hobbies, interests, things that make me feel good that I know that I look forward to so that my life is fulfilling, my life has purpose, and I'm not needing to drink every day? Yeah. Wow. Okay. I love that. I love these three stages. Um, That's so powerful. So removing, so you recommend, let, let's talk a little bit more about each of those. Cause I know my audience probably has questions and is a bit curious. So when you state phase one, let's, or stage one, uh, when you remove alcohol, uh, I know you have an amazing 30 day program for this. Is that enough? Like is 30 days enough? Do you ever, you know, encourage people to go longer than that before starting? It sounds like you kind of do those separate. So just focus on removing the alcohol and then after 30 days, sort of start dipping into stage two, or is it sometimes longer than that? Like, what, what is that? Yeah. I know my people will have that question. It's different for everyone. I yeah. My programs are 30 days because it's funny, like most people probably 
wouldn't join. I've, I've done surveys on 100%. this. 100%. If yeah. they thought it would be longer than that. So yeah. Whereas 30 days feels manageable. So I bring them into this world to show them you can do 30 days. You can. And here, and I give them tons of resources, tons of information that really helps change the neural pathways so that they're not constantly needing to think about alcohol. I would say really that first stage is about 90 days to 100 days. I would say that realistically that first stage is is around three months of just getting in. We, we've done quite a few firsts in that if we do three months. So you might have done your first party without drinking. You might have done your first birthday celebration, perhaps a wedding, perhaps a funeral, perhaps a leaving drinks at work, like whatever the things are, you might have gone through quite a few firsts. You start, That sober muscle that I talk about starts to get stronger and we start to feel a wee bit more grounded of going yeah, I actually really like this version of me that doesn't drink. Like it gives us enough time to kind of be able to go, because for some people in those first four weeks, they actually feel like shit for four weeks because they've been drinking for 20, 30, 40 years. I work with women who've been drinking alcohol very, um, very strongly for, for up to 40 years. And so we ain't going to suddenly feel great in four weeks. You know, for some people, we feel absolutely knackered. It's really common to feel really tired. Yeah. To It takes 72 hours for alcohol to leave our system. It takes up to two years for our neurotransmitters to recalibrate and to rebalance. Wow. So there's a lot that goes on in our brain specifically that affects our mood when we are drinking alcohol consistently. But generally speaking, by around the 90, 100 day mark, most people are going to be starting to feel physically brighter, have more energy, be sleeping really well. The brain fog will have lifted. They're starting to go, I really like this version of me. I really like the version of me that that shows up as a, as a mom or a wife or how much more productive I am at work or, or whatever those things are. So that would, I would say, be the stage one for most people. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. No, thank you for explaining that. And it, it slides nicely into talking about stage two, because what I hear you sharing, um, and I really echo this, is that identity piece. It's like starting to create a new relationship with the new you, right? A new a new sense of who you are. And I know you talked about, you know, Sarah being Sarah, the party girl, right? Before. And that is an identity. That's a piece of like, no, this is just who I am, right? And I know I I can see those areas in myself, you know, in, in full disclosure is like Danny's Danny's the wino. Like I, I know my wine. I love my wine. Like that's kind of a piece of my identity that, you know, gets carried into some social situations and things like that. So that's a really, you know, fascinating piece to just notice even like who we think we are in reference to alcohol or how that plays a, a picture in painting who we are as we present ourselves to the world. So yeah, I can see like obviously in same with my journey with sugar, right? It's that like the time that elapses, you start realizing, well, I'm just that person that doesn't eat birthday cake. Like I'm not that person anymore. I'm a different person and it takes the time to integrate that um, into, I would say, like our bodies, like our brain can understand it, but there's a felt sense that takes time as you're saying, like, now I no longer feel like crap. And, you know, 90 to 100 days in, I'm actually like, really feeling in my body the differences of how I can live life and the potentiality that I have now that alcohol is no longer holding me back. Yeah. And the biggest problem I think that people face, and I think this would be where there would be a slight difference with sugar is yeah. that there are strong associations that alcohol makes us fun 
and that right. alcohol makes us sociable and that a life without alcohol is boring. Right. And so, whereas, you know, like, I, I don't think that's as strong for sugar. Whereas, you know, with, with parties, yeah. with socializing, everyone associates any of those events with having a glass in hand, with getting a baguette pissed, with getting, you know, raucous and, and all of those things. And no, our brain doesn't think about, oh, but the next when you're lying in bed at three o'clock in the morning riddled with anxiety and you can't get back to sleep and you're hungover and you and you've got thinking about the day ahead and you're hating on yourself because you drank too much the night before your brain doesn't think about that your brain thinks about the the positives of alcohol and always goes oh but I need it to have fun and so creating a new identity it involves getting your head around the fact that it's not a less than life to remove alcohol if anything it's a it's a way more fulfilling and fun and interesting life but we have to rewire the neural pathways because they're yeah. so ingrained and and it doesn't help that society reinforces these pathways that you you need alcohol to have fun so you say to someone oh I stopped smoking and they'll go oh good on you well done that's really great you say to someone you stop drinking and quite often the response will be oh don't be so boring just have one yeah and, and so you've got all of that to overcome and that is why I always say removing alcohol or doing a break from alcohol in a group with others is so helpful because it can feel so lonely, particularly if you surround yourself with people who drink a lot, because I find that most gray area drinkers do surround themselves with other gray area drinkers because then they can justify their drinking. And so if you've got a friendship group where everyone drinks quite a lot and then you decide I'm taking a break you don't have to say forever but I'm taking a break from alcohol it can feel incredibly lonely and that's why doing it in a group with others and that's why my challenges are so successful is is absolutely key when you're when you just need somewhere to to be seen and heard and go oh you know I felt like crap today I, I because you know what happens so often with my clients is they don't get invited to things because they're not drinking right I've had that happen to me um, I've had people say to me, let's catch up when you're drinking again. Wow. Like we do live in a world that associates alcohol with fun, with socializing. So therefore, if you are not drinking, you're going to be boring. And if you've got friends who are particularly boozy, sometimes they don't invite you to things because they don't want to feel judged um, yeah. if you're not drinking. And, and that can be hard. So oh the, the identity piece is actually quite big. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. Um, I'm sure others can can relate to that fear. I know I can relate to that fear of like not being invited to things, the fear of FOMO, right? Or fear of not being liked. And then that brings up all those pieces. Um, and I would offer to that, and I know you would say the same thing, like what a, I mean, here's a mindset shift. What a amazing opportunity and gift to really deeply reflect on who you're considering are your friends, Right. Like if, if people are going to, if the people in your life that you think are your friends that are going to do that, I know for me, even just in my health journey in general, my inner healing journey and going on and wanting to eat healthy. I mean, that whole process has actually involved shedding my whole friend group that I used to coexist with and creating a whole new group that is in alignment with supporting the life that I want to live. Right. And, and being yeah. healthy. And but, we don't get together and go party. We don't, I mean, drinking is not, it's like optional. It's not a big deal. It's not like we're getting yeah. together to get, you know, so, or to like eat a bunch of, binge eat a bunch of sugar and eat pizza together, you know, whatever it is. Yeah, and that yeah. took a long time to shift, but that is, that, that is one of the, the painful gifts because it's extremely difficult, right? To be okay with no longer being invited and to really sit with, I don't actually 
want to be friends with those people anymore and to let them go with love to invite in possibly new people that are that are in alignment with supporting you and cheering you on yeah but it's hard because you know going back to so what hard. we talked about before a, a human is built for belonging community yeah. connection and tribe so if you yeah. feel like by removing alcohol you're going to lose your tribe that is what gets so many people unstuck because that, yeah. that fear of loneliness. Yeah. And so then you have this battle inside of, do I keep drinking even though I don't want to so that I still keep a group of friends? Or do I remove alcohol, which is what I want to do, but then I run the risk of being alone and lonely. And, on, yeah. you know, and, and that's, it's a, it's a big, big part of the For the sure. Journey. Yeah. And that's why, you know, I'll, I'll just reiterate exactly what you said about the importance of community. Right. I know you and I both have that with, with the work that we do. And it's so vital, like a hundred, it's, it's not optional. It's not, well, I'll just try it on my own. It is not optional. Like it is, if you want to actually make this stick, um, because we do get back in those cycles, there are so many things that we will face that we cannot face alone. And I don't mean that to disempower anyone because we're capable of anything and we're strong, powerful women. And of course we have so much power, but when it comes to challenges like this, especially around addictive patterns, whether it's alcohol or sugar, cocaine, whatever it is, right, is just not something we can heal in isolation. Because the reason we're doing that pattern and cycle is because of isolation, right? It's because of feeling lonely. It's because of never feeling heard or seen. It's because of not knowing how to navigate our emotions, like all this stuff that we can't like learn on our own. So yeah, I really that that feels an important part of that. So if we're we're you know if we can confidently feel a part of a tribe and a network of like look at all these amazing people not drinking. I want to be friends with them. Totally. Then it's less scary to start sort of naturally shifting away from, you know, the party friends that you might be hanging out with yeah. now. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Totally. I know that kind of naturally happened for me like I said as I started just making more health conscious friends. I started going to different events. I started going to yoga and retreats and like places where people, you know, breath work and, and ecstatic dance and these places where people were really into spirituality and into really healing and, and doing their inner work, taking responsibility for their life. And that just naturally is people who are less inclined to want to treat their body like crap. Uh, not perfect, but yeah, naturally a, a good, good space to find some, hopefully some good people who are interested in, in doing the work, right. And healing. Yeah. So what, what other, you mentioned therapy yourself, um, you know, let's talk about this phase two a little more. We're already kind of talking about that identity piece, but addressing why we drink. So I know you've talked a little bit about this, but what are some tools that, um, that you found helpful here? I know this is something that I'm very fascinated about in just healing our addictive patterns in general and the inner work is what I call the inner work. It's a part of everything that I do very deeply because we need to understand why, like why the pattern existed in the first place, why that neural pathway is there. Why is that so hard? So what are some of the tools that you use or that your clients have had success with, you know, to, to help them actually get into that. And perhaps you can speak to a little bit of a reality check about how long that might take. You know, I think yeah. there's misconceptions that, well, that's just a couple of therapy sessions and I'm healed, right? I wish, no. <laughs> no, I mean, right? But, but, but what I would say to that is, I think that you reach a point, and I don't know if this is true for you, but this is for me, that I've discovered that doing the inner work is, it never ends. 
There is no, no end point. You never get there and go, oh, that's it. I'm done now. My, yeah. I'm, I know everything there is to know about myself and I am healed and I never get triggered and everything in my world is wonderful. How boring would it be if we got to that point? Like totally. it's the inner work yeah. is, is just the, the layers that we peel back that sometimes you peel back three or four and intensely in one go and then you stay at that stage for a year and then you something happens and you go back. And so for me, that's just the ongoing in a work but I would say that the initial part for me I did a certain style of therapy called schema therapy which is very similar to internal family systems um which Richard Schwartz um is very big with this in in the states and it looks at what are the coping strategies that you've developed in your life as a result to any trauma that you may have had um as a child and I'm sure you've talked about this in the podcast but we can talk about the fact that trauma is not just big T trauma in terms of the big things that may have happened, like, you know, really severe abuse, neglect, living in a war zone. You know, a lot of people say to me, but I've got no trauma, right? I had a happy childhood. My parents didn't separate. We stayed together. But then you start to dive into it and you go, oh, but your parents were working really hard all the time and you didn't often feel seen or heard or or understood. There was some emotional deprivation going on there. Or maybe you had, um, you were bullied in the school ground and you didn't actually go and tell your parents about it and you pretended everything was fine and you're carrying that trauma inside you. So there can be things that we've created maladaptive coping strategies at different points in our life, whether that's people pleasing, whether that's perfectionism, whether that's um, being that classic obliger that always has to put everybody first before themselves, which is often the case for so many women. So we, we, when we do that style of therapy, we get to know the coping strategies and then we get, it all starts to make sense. And Richard Schwartz t- calls addiction, it's kind of like the firefighter. So when your coping strategies have, have been working really well, so people pleasing, you know, when I do that, it makes me feel good enough inside. So I just have to keep doing that. But then there might be certain times in our life where it's not working enough. And that's where addiction kind of comes in and goes, don't worry, I've got this. I'll make all those feelings go away. And and so we use the alcohol or we use the sugar or whatever. So I really recommend schema therapy or internal family systems therapy yep. is a great place to get started with identifying what the the unmet needs may have been as a child. And it's not about making our parents wrong. It's about understanding that they were doing the best they can with what they had at a time, fully appreciating the world that they grew in, grew up in, where there was no talk of this kind of, you know, emotional love and support. Most of us had parents who were children of the Second World War. And so in those days, they were just bloody lucky if they had a roof over their head, food on their table. And and there was no such thing as, oh, I'm so sorry that you were bullied at school today. Let me sit down and help you and talk about that. It was just kind of get on with it. Kids were seen and not heard. And, and you weren't able to voice that. So our parents didn't have the ability to then, you know, really offer that down to many of us. And I find that's a common theme for so many of the women I work with. So that phase of therapy for me has been ongoing I don't really see my therapist much at all anymore but that first year it was pretty intense yeah yeah amazing 
Yeah, I my my current therapist is trained in internal family systems as well. And my husband's actually just doing the program. Um, so that's exciting. He's going to be teaching me lots about that. But awesome. it's fascinating. I mean, there's so many different modalities and styles. Like I just want to yeah. add to that for 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 therapy. And, and I would even so throw in somatic therapy. That's something I think is so uh, missed and forgotten is the actual memories and what's going on in our body because most of that's actually stored in our body and our nervous system. Um, oh, yeah. And, and I probably should that. mention that I went on to do somatic therapy after a year Great. talking therapy. I went on to start somatic therapy and that is a non-negotiable in my life now. So I do one-to-one breath work with my yes. somatic um, teacher on, on quite a regular basis. Um, I have learned a lot about my nervous system because I've realized that my nervous system was very dysregulated from being such a young age. And people who have a dysregulated nervous system are much more likely to turn to alcohol because alcohol is a depressant. So if we're living in fight or flight in that highly activated, anxious state a lot of the time, of course we turn to alcohol because it works in the short term because it's a depressant and it brings us down. And so actually removing the need for the alcohol comes from actually working with our nervous system to actually start to regulate it so that the that we're calm and we're content and we don't yeah. need the alcohol and that's i believe can only be done through somatic yeah. work yeah yeah 100% i agree you know and there's that piece i know you would agree with this too right of of building not only regulating our nervous system and finding our grounded you know resourcing ourselves and and finding that calm but it's building internal resources and tools to handle when shit gets hard to handle the big emotions. I know you and I both, we've talked about this before, you know, I had no reference growing up for how do I sit with grief? How do I channel my anger and rage? How do I be sad and not like the really heavy, shitty emotions, right? To feel, we have no reference for that. And that's, I mean, I know that's a big part of the work that you've done and, and that we we both do is is like building those, that reference. So when those heavy emotions come up, you know that you're okay. Because I think there is that pattern of I'm like, this is going to ruin me and I'm going to die. And I have like, this is too much. It's too much. So I'm going to ignore it. And I'm going to use a depressant, fantastic depressant, like alcohol to just make it go away, to ignore it, right? To to hope it passes. Yeah. Learning to sit with our emotions and not just numb them instantly is the ongoing work. Yeah. Um, Yeah. But the way that we do it is by doing it. And by going, ah, oh, I feel really sad. This awful thing has happened that has made me feel so sad. And a really simple technique that I found was to simply say to myself, of course I feel sad right now. Mm. Almost just validating the emotion because so many of us have been raised to believe that those uncomfortable emotions are negative and they're bad and we've got to put on a brave face all the time and pretend that everything's fine even when it's not and so to simply just sit with a hand on your heart and say of course this is hard right now Sarah of course you're feeling sad right now what do you need you know like just pausing in that moment instead of just going oh this has happened I feel so terrible inside I just need to make it go away and therefore I'm going to turn to alcohol yeah and then I can pretend that everything's fine yeah yeah oh I love that yeah that's so beautiful thank you for sharing that that small little tool right where we can connect with ourselves and and we can reparent ourselves in that way like validate like you said validate like yes it's okay to feel sad right now it's okay to call in sick for work because you just need to be in bed and cry all day right like that's okay 
right? Yeah. And it's also okay to not know why you're sad. That's a big one I love working on with my clients because we have this conceived notion. Like as soon as we start, and I'm actually curious if you see this, you know, as soon as we start addressing why we drank, right? Or, or why we eat and like doing that deep inner work, it can bring up a lot of emotions. It can bring up a lot of stuff that needs to be processed, right? That needs to be released. And oftentimes it's not current. It could be from childhood. And we, you know, our propensity is to definitely try to figure out why, like the thinking brain wants to come back online and be like, why am I sad today? Why do I feel so shitty today? Like, why am I depressed today? Um, and try to make, why am I so angry? And like, we'll, we'll kind of become obsessive over that. Do you see that with your clients as well? Absolutely. And it's simply about being able to accept that your emotions are constantly moving right emotion it means it's constant it's never going to be staying the same and so I always say let's treasure and celebrate when we feel great and let's you know just be be so grateful for those moments and when we're struggling let's know that it's not going to last and the goal is not to never struggle the goal is to struggle well so how do I support myself when I'm struggling what's in my toolkit to support myself? Is it my weighted blanket? Is it going for a walk with my dog? Is it journaling? Is it reaching out to that certain friend who always just lifts my spirits a bit? Like just start to, to know that with the goal is not to never struggle. That is not realistic and that is not life. But the goal is to have some tools in your toolkit. And that's, I cover this so much in the book of what, how can I struggle well so that I can move through it perhaps a little bit quicker than, than, than if I, I wasn't um, actually acknowledging that feeling. Yeah. Yeah. I love that quote. I forget who, who says it. I just shared it recently on my social media that we're not here to feel better. We're here to get better at feeling. Right. I love, love that, that quote. And that's, yeah. that's really what you're, what you're sharing there, right. Is, is learning how to hold ourselves and how to be okay in the difficult times and to know that it's okay. I think that was really important. You just mentioned that like this, that, that's not realistic. It's not a part of our human experience to never feel crappy. I think a lot of people have that belief. I know some people close to me and my family um, actually making the choice to to be on medication, even antidepressants, because when they feel bad, they think there's something wrong, right? That there's something wrong with, I'm not supposed to feel blue. I'm not supposed to feel like sad this week, you know, when there's things going through me. So I'm, I'm, I better, I better take, you know, something right to make me feel better or whether it's alcohol or antidepressants or sugar, right? There's no judgment here, but it's just understanding that that is, that is a false belief that our culture holds that we're not supposed to. And I think, especially as women, you know, I can see even in my mom's generation, my mom is of Scandinavian descent. And I've had some really interesting conversations with her lately about how like the Danes, she's Danish. uh, The Danes are always stoic. They're always even keeled. They're always like, just chill. Like nothing bothers the Danes. And I'm like, what? (laughs) I call bullshit on your culture. And like, how can things not bother you? What if somebody you love dies or someone takes away your favorite stuffed animal? Like you're allowed to be angry. Um, So there is like this undertow of like, just keep it together. And especially with women, you've got to be even keeled. And like, there's something wrong with you if you have a, like a a strong emotion, right? Or a, a, a big one. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas it's actually just teaching that we're allowed to feel. Yeah. And yeah. there's a brilliant book actually called Permission to Feel by Dr. Mark Brackett. I don't know if you've read it and it's, um, no. it's awesome. And it's, it's all about how to learn to sit with feelings. Yeah. Yeah. It's so empowering. I, I personally feel like, um, it's been a big part of sort of my empowerment journey and my waking up journey, like to, to be with myself in those tender spaces and to know that I'm okay and, and have my toolbox. Like I know my toolbox, um, 
in terms of what I can do to support myself. And I'm definitely not perfect at it. Definitely not perfect at it at all. Um, but like being able to navigate through that is actually like it, it this sometimes gives me a dopamine hit getting through that. Like I remember when I lost my cat a couple of years ago and it was some of the worst grief that I've ever experienced because it to me felt like losing a child. And I remember navigating myself through that and supporting myself through that um, and doing that with very minimal alcohol or sugar, my old coping mechanisms, definitely some Netflix, but in a way that I felt really proud of. And I remember coming out of that, like, you know, just feeling that new level of sort of love for myself and pride in like navigating that. It's almost like walking through those difficult times can, can really bring a new sense of, I don't know, pride's the word that's coming to me. I don't know if you've experienced that too, but it's that like, yeah. I just did this, like doing something really hard is really rewarding, right? And navigating painful emotions is freaking hard, really hard. We have yeah. no tools. We are not given tools growing up and we have to learn them. And that in itself can possibly be a dopamine hit. I don't know. I'm just throwing that out there. Oh, for sure. Like I've got a client recently and she just lost her mom and she went through that, that whole experience without alcohol. And she said it you know, she came through it just and was kind of saying to me, I'm just so grateful that I didn't drink because I feel like because I didn't drink, I, I allowed all the emotions and I yeah. feel like that's meant for me that I've processed it in a way healthier way than if I'd just been drinking and numbing. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Okay. So uh, in our last few minutes here, I'm just, I'm going to talk to you forever, but I want to be respectful of your time. Uh, the phase three, we didn't really touch too much on that, but you did mention a few of the things there. I, just curious if you want to add anything else to that phase three piece around like, what are we adding to the life now that we've taken away alcohol, we're doing some of that deep inner work, addressing like why we're drinking in the first place, which is obviously ongoing over years. So what are we adding into our life? Like, how are we creating more joy? I heard you mention this earlier. Like, how can we add more things that we love, more things that give us pleasure, more things that give us joy? Um, are there any other pieces that you want to add there? Yeah. So I've got an entire section of the book on this and it's called What's Your Fun Plan? And it's basically about like we as I said earlier, we've been so conditioned to believe that alcohol is fun and that we only have fun if we're out socializing, getting pissed, wearing a fancy dress, out in a bar, taking photos for Instagram, making our life look amazing, and that's fun. And so if we remove alcohol, then the theory is therefore you're never gonna have fun again because you're not gonna do those things. And actually I call bullshit on all of that and I say that that actually let's first of all explore what is fun what's the definition of fun it's anything you do for your own joy and pleasure yeah right so fun is not just getting dressed up going to a bar and drinking cocktails like sometimes for me fun is being in my pajamas at six o'clock on a Friday night with a bowl of popcorn watching dirty dancing Sometimes fun for me is getting up at 5 a.m. to go do a sunrise hike with a girlfriend and sitting at the top of a, a you know, a beautiful gorge that we've just climbed and having a cup of coffee out of a flask and just looking at the world around us. Sometimes fun is going to a tap dancing class. Sometimes fun is going on a one-day breathwork practitioner course and learning how to do something that you're really interested in. I've got clients for whom fun has been horse riding. It's been joining a choir. It's been learning to play the piano. It's been going to a pottery studio, like actually starting to explore what do I love doing for my own joy and pleasure that has no other purpose than something that I just want to do for me. And what I find is that most women don't have 
that thing. And most will say exercise, but when you actually drill down to it, do you exercise because you love it or do you exercise out of guilt? Do you exercise Mm -hmm. out of justification? Like I exercise because I love it and I think everyone should exercise because of what it does for our neurotransmitters in our brain. But that's not enough. I also need activities that give me that flow space where I lose track of time. I love reading. I'm an avid learner. I've discovered in sobriety how much I love learning. And I've done you know, loads of online courses and stuff because you end up with so much time when you stop drinking. So <laughs> it's about starting to be curious. And I have loads of ideas in the book for women to start to consider, well, what am I going to start to do? And then there's an entire section in the book of the biggest block to actually being able to do this is time and guilt. So we've actually got to create more the time to allow ourselves to do it. And we've got to get over the guilt that so many women have that I'm not allowed to take time for myself. And the problem with alcohol is that we can drink our wine whilst we're folding the washing, unloading the dishwasher, making dinner, um, cleaning the bench and doing all of those things. And so it's our like, you know, it's our little reward for ourselves when we're doing all the jobs. Whereas to go and do a yoga class, to go and do a tap dancing class, to go and take time to go on a creative writing course involves us having to step away from the home. And most women really struggle with that. So there's a lot in the book about how to overcome that as well. Wow. That's so potent. So powerful. It's that worthiness piece that keeps coming up. That That's the word for me is like, I'm not worthy of taking that time for myself or that worthy of that. I've, that's been a big part of my journey with food is in that inner work journey. One of the fun things that happened was I started being curious about dating myself, like spending time with myself. Like who is Danny? And can I actually have fun with Danny? Um, things like dance parties and like puzzling and going out shopping by myself and like going on hikes. And I got to explore those things. And I kind of came at it through that lens of like getting to know myself. And I think that kind of goes hand in hand with, of course, inner child work. A big part of, you know, my work has been tapping back into play and fun and silliness. And that is a part of who I am. So like playing at the playground as an adult, like these silly things that can tap us into our inner child and actually can be a big part of that healing journey we talked about earlier, but I absolutely love that. I think you're, I mean, there's so much wisdom in that. And I'm so excited for for everybody who's listening to this to grab the book. I'm so excited for the book and can't wait to read it myself. Uh, My copy hasn't arrived yet, but it's coming soon. And, um, and really dive into that because fun and play is, is an area that I'm constantly working on. And I think we all need to have more of it. And we all need to know that that's, that's valuable and valid and and that we're worthy of those things and to stop prioritizing everyone else and put some fun in back into our life and pleasure even. I mean, that's a whole nother episode for another another way, but pleasure is is a taboo thing as well. And it's like, no, um, go, go get, you know, go do those things, right? Go do the things that you enjoy because you have one life. And yeah. you know, I don't know if you've read, there's an incredible book called The Five Regrets of the Dying. And it's um, a woman who's a palliative care nurse and she works, she, you know, she, her job is to sit with people at the end of their lives. And she's written a book about the biggest regrets that people have at the end of their lives. And it's things like, I wish I hadn't hurt, worked so hard. Yeah. I yeah. wish I had, I had spent more time with my friends. Mm-hmm. And the final one that just gets me every time is, I wish I had let myself be happier. Yeah. And the message of my book is, this is your one life. Let yourself be happy. Yeah, that's so powerful. So powerful. Thank you so much, Sarah, for for sharing this. I mean, it, we could talk forever, um, but I, yeah, I'm just so grateful for the work that you're doing and the groups that you have. And I really want to encourage everyone who's listening to this, if you're resonating at all, grab the book. 
Uh, I know it's going to be amazing and definitely go and connect with Sarah. Uh, do you have any final words, any final pieces? And of course, please, where can people find more about you online and, and everything that you're doing outside of obviously the book, which the link will be in the show notes. Yeah. So head to Amazon um, USA and Canada to be able to, to order the book. And I think my final words would be just be curious, have a read of the book, be curious about what role alcohol plays in your life, be curious about, and even if alcohol isn't truly prevalent in your life, um, there is so much in there about how to create a life we love. And if you feel that your life is not where you want it to be, have a look at the book to get some ideas and tools and tips for what, um, what might be something that you'd like to add into it. Uh, I'm very present on Instagram, so give me a follow there, which is just at Sarah Rusbach, R-U-S-B-A-T-C-H, and head to my website where there's tons of tools, there's tons of free resources, there's lots of information um, around gray area drinking. Yeah, amazing. I'll make sure, of course, all those links are in the show notes below. Um, so definitely check that out, everybody, and continue this conversation. Thank you so much for being here, Sarah. Uh, I always just absolutely love our chats and yeah, so, so grateful and proud of the work that you're doing in the world. It's so deeply important and um, yeah, keep, keep going, keep going, sister. (laughs) Thanks for being here. I always love our chats. And so thank you so much for having me. Yes, of course. And thank you everyone for tuning in. Thank you for listening to another episode and we look forward to seeing you in the next one. Thank you for tuning in to another episode. If you're loving what we talked about today, please take a minute to subscribe, leave a review, and share this episode with someone you love. It helps us in a big way reach more people and change more lives. And if you're ready to go deeper into discovering your unique root causes and patterns that are keeping you hooked on sugar, be sure to check out our brand new free quiz that will tell you which root cause is holding you back from freedom with food and give you the healing action steps to break free from these old patterns for good. Find the link to take the free quiz and other amazing resources in the show notes below.